You know what I'm upset about with this Star Wars? I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but like... Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, today is December 31st, 2019. We Th- snuck into the office. We snuck into the office, which is closed, uh, but we are here. Um, Going to do a kind of a year-end show, yep. um, et cetera. So I thought I'd start out just say, like, what, what surprised you in the year of our Lord, 2019? I think the thing that surprised me was how— much, especially within the world of conservatism, how there kept being arguments made where I was like, oh, interesting. So we're just going to do like 1993 again. Like a lot of, like the debates over pornography or kind of the debates of like, yo, what is government for? What are we doing here? It was interesting because it really did harken back to me to kind of this idea of using the the forces of government to do things that you want to do, not just abandoning government as a concept. And this, you know, kind of the break between conservatism and libertarians has been really interesting to me. I think that's been somewhat surprising. Um, also, I've been interested in how much, I don't know, I feel like 20, I keep having moments where I thought that something happened in 2019 and then it actually happened in like 2017. And I think that something that kind of surprised me is that like, the, the movement and mechanisms of time have gotten really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, there, someone made a joke on Twitter about, time you know, we're reaching yeah. the end of the 48th month of 2016. And right. Like, the extent, right. The extent to which it just is a big indistinguishable slurry um, is kind of something. That said, I think what surprised me in 2019, given 2017 and 2018, right. was that at least in some issue areas. I think foreign policy is a good example. Immigration, obviously, because I'm saying it is like where I'm coming from with this. Right. Um, The story, the kind of the White House or Donald Trump has these galaxy brain ideas and then they kind of get slow walked into oblivion by the powers that be in the bureaucracy. um, Got that happened a lot in 2017, 2018. And in 2019, it felt like the White House's ability to actually exert its will over the rest of the executive branch strengthened. And I think a lot of that is just the hollowing out of, you know, in some cases, senior civil servants who are, you know, fed up and quitting. In some cases, the kind of continued, like, churn of politicals and the replacement of permanent appointees with, like, actings all over the government so that they're all really serving at the moment-to-moment will of the president has meant that a lot of the people whose job it would be under normal circumstances to say, okay, we need to slow down and think about this and figure out the best or most legal or whatever way to do this or just quietly shelve it at the bottom of the agenda forever are not there to say no or not yet anymore. And so I think, you know, while the first two years of this presidency had me thinking that the that Trump's kind of long-term impact on the executive branch might have been somewhat overstated. I now think it's somewhat understated. And we've, right. we've really seen that in immigration, right? I mean, there's been a total renewal of the the leadership personnel. Yes. Right? From, from where— <laughs> like, wh- about— 
two or three times over in most cases. Yeah. Right. But I mean, but I mean, like, that's not a coincidence, right? Like, that's the process that you are talking about. Like, enough people have quit or been fired and been replaced with actings to the point that Trump has now got in place a team such as it is that, like, actually does what he said. And my sense for what it's worth is that this is not, it's not that there's something unique about immigration policy here. It's just that there tends to be more friction when Donald Trump is paying attention to a particular issue area and therefore has some ideas for what he wants to see happen out of it. And as that attention kind of intensifies or wanes, the people who are currently in their positions become less or more safe, depending. Like, I've heard from some folks at state who think that, you know, they are they have a little more breathing room compared to the first year of the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas I think it on some of the kind of border stuff in particular, there wasn't really a lot of emphasis in 2017. But like there certainly has been a lot in 2018, 2019. Because you do have these contrary examples, right? Where like Trump was tweeting the other day or talking about how like you have to flush toilets too much. Yep. Yeah. And was saying, well, we're going to review that. And at least my understanding as of now is like the EPA is not in fact right. reassessing no. those On rules. On the other hand, the president's obsession with homelessness does appear to actually be turning into a domestic policy point. Yeah. So, right. no, and, right. and I don't think I think that that's actually a really good non-immigration example of something that like genuinely would not have happened in 2017, 2018. They wouldn't have known what levers to pull. And there would have been people in the government saying, hold on, let's figure out what the legal way to go about this is and what is least likely to get struck down by the well, courts. Well, and the interesting thing on, on homelessness is that somebody in the White House went and found a guy who like does in fact work on homelessness policy and like not not somebody whose work you know I like or experts who I know think is right, good right, but like right. he really does do this like he has been working on homelessness for years right, yeah. and broadly speaking agrees with Trump's cranky takes on yeah. this and they're like going to bring him in to to do things right and that's what I think in 2017 in particular you often didn't have right was like okay someone now has to go through the Rolodex and not find like the top guy in the Republican Party list but a guy who's plausible enough but who also is basically on board with Trump I think that that's the thing I want to revise my my first interesting or surprising thing is that we've been talking a lot over the course of this here podcast about how there's Donald Trump and the Trump administration and largely those were two different things Mm -hmm. and how Trump would say something the Trump administration would be like we'll get back to you and we're just going to keep on doing what we would do on pretty a standard Republican administration Mm -hmm. I think now we're starting to see that line blur and break down entirely where it's kind of like oh this is Donald Trump's Trump administration. And we're seeing that in foreign policy. We're seeing that on domestic issues. And it's interesting, though, because, you know, you see so many times the administration attempting to parse things out as if they did not originate the way they did. So, for instance, the administration deciding, like, oh, we care deeply about Baltimore. And I'm like, no, you just wanted to yell about the late Elijah Cummings on Twitter. And, you know, um, as the Daily Beast has reported, all of the alleged efforts that were going to take place in Baltimore have resulted in nothing. Nothing has happened. But it is interesting to see that, like, the administration kind of does this weird cleanup. And now, the like, but the interests of the administration and the person heading the administration are now becoming one. And I think we should mention impeachment. 
yeah. in this regard, right? I was surprised that the impeachment didn't come for what we thought impeachment would come for. Oh, yes. But, but I didn't weird. I didn't mean that. But I mean, impeachment is an example of exactly what you were just talking about there, Jane, right? Where, right. Like, initially, it was like Trump had this view of Ukraine and the Trump administration's Ukraine policy was something else entirely. And uh, there were efforts made by, like, the people who went to Zelensky's inauguration to come back and tell Trump, no, 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 this dude is for real. Right. But, like, fundamentally, Trump was eventually able to, like, turn the truck in the direction he wanted. Dara, I mean, to your point, in this case, he didn't quite nail down the, like, how do we do it legally? But what's interesting is that, you know, Senate Republicans, uh, congressional Republicans obviously decided at the end of the day that, like, they're going, I I think pretty clearly they wish this hadn't happened. But, like, they're going to get on board with it right, because it, yeah. it is what it is, right? And that's the process by which the whole phenomenon you were talking about, Jared, yeah. like, takes place, right? Like, it is now clear, retroactively at least, that, like, the congressional Republicans want Donald Trump's appointees to do what Trump tells them, even when what Trump is telling them is, like, off bounds for what Republicans had traditionally espoused as, as their policy goals. I mean, it's a it's a much, you know, firmer, more formal imprimatur when, like, this could have gone the other way to be like, no, look, like, John Bolton and these other guys, like, embody authentic conservative public policy values. When Trump breaks the law to subvert it, like, we team up with Democrats to say, no, you can't do this. Right. But it is interesting how kind of the concept of what Republicans would traditionally do has changed. I just keep thinking, you know, as we enter 2020, that we are now 40 years removed from the election of Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan, among conservatives, you know, it's interesting. You see, um, I think it was, um, is Ken Kuchin, what is his role now? (laughs) Depending on which website you look at, he's acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and or acting deputy director of, or or deputy secretary of uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Well, it was interesting to see a tweet that he tweeted um, after the horrible attacks in New York um, against um, an Orthodox celebration of Hanukkah. He tweeted something about, like, how the person who committed this parents were allowed to come in on, like, a 1980s immigration— Well, they were legalized under the 1986 Reagan amnesty. Right, exactly, which is— Although said tweet was since deleted, so yes. it's not clear whether it was that was inaccurate or whether he realized he might have run afoul of the Privacy Act or something like or, that. Yeah, many things, but just the idea—it's it, interesting how much, you know, conservatism has long prided itself on its basis on tradition and kind of, you know, standing athwart progress, yelling stop. But the Republican Party is essentially saying, like, eh, that's fine. Whatever it is, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Okay, so, Matt, Matt, what surprised you? So, okay, this is totally different. But, like, what's shocked me across 2019 is Pete Buttigieg, right? Hey. Like, you guys remember, like, we— he was on the weeds. He was. In he March was at South by Southwest during his like first media blitz. Yeah, and which I don't was, wanna... I think the smartest strategic move anyone's made in this primary. He was, but and I, I don't, I, I don't know. Like when he was booked 
to 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 come on a show at South by Southwest. I mean, that was at the end of a process where like we were trying to get like a lot of presidential candidates yes. on the show. Um, he was he and and Julian Castro were were the guys who said yes, uh, which was smart of them, reflected well of them. I thought it was a good interview. You know, like I came away from that episode definitely like thinking better of him. But you know, the day before we did that show, I was like. What are we doing? Like the mayor of South Bend, Indiana? And the day after the show, I was like, that's a smart guy. But I wasn't like, now it makes sense to me that the mayor of South Bend, Indiana is going to be a major presidential contender. And, you know, he's he's probably not going to win. Um, but the his ability to get ahead of all these other people in the polls, to turn himself into this, like, donor juggernaut. Like, it's it's mind-blowing to me. And I, I hope everyone takes away the lesson that more politicians should come on the weeds. That's but- the only lesson I've come from this entire thing, <laughs> is that more politicians should come on this year podcast. I but it's like, weird, right? At the same right? time, though, I mean, it is very strange at the same time, thinking back to the, like— 2016 Republican convention or, or nomination process, the 2012 Republican nomination process, to a certain extent, 2008 on the Democratic side, like the there's been a, a real correlation between kind of buzziness and news generating mm-hmm. and like a real shift in the polls. And we've seen that to a certain extent with Buttigieg. But at the same time, Joe Biden and to a lesser extent, Bernie Sanders have generated less news and buzz and, like, you know, capital E, like, excitement from the people who generate buzz and news Uh than the tier of candidates below them. And they still remain, like, Biden remains the unquestioned frontrunner and Sanders remains, you know, an unquestioned top-tier candidate. And so it's been interesting to see that that kind of, that unlike, say, 2016, where, you know, Jeb Bush, a nominal frontrunner, was really losing support yeah, once yeah, other yeah, candidates yeah. started getting more buzz. That hasn't happened right. with Biden and Sanders. I, right. It's just what, what's part of what's striking to me about Buttigieg is that, you know, you look at Donald Trump who won or somebody like Andrew Yang who's not going to win. But, like, the reason that guys who did not have, like, traditional presidential resumes were getting a lot of attention was that they had distinctive messages, right? Whereas Buttigieg's message, which, like, it strikes me as a fine message because I'm a kind of banal Democrat, but, like, it's not, like, I I couldn't, like, describe to you what, like, a Pete Buttigieg Democrat is that's, like, so striking and amazingly different. And it's, like, this is why people are rallying to this guy. Whereas, to me, like, the takeaway of Trump is pretty clearly that had some, like, more conventional presidential aspirant, like gone as a hard anti-immigration candidate, like that guy Though I, I will possibly go could have gotten a lot of support. Donald Trump always overstated his own uniqueness in that regard, and that too was key to his support because he successfully persuaded people that they hadn't been hearing things they had, in fact, been hearing in other forms. Right? Yeah. No, I mean that that, that is definitely true. But I mean, he he, he wrote. Yeah, we're, we're not mystified. It's like, what was Donald Trump saying in that right. campaign? Right. What, what did Donald Trump have to offer that other people did not? <laughs> um, you know, it's like the hats, the wall. Like, we, like we yeah. all get it there. Whereas, like Buttigieg, I don't know. Buttigieg needs more hats. Is that what you're saying? That's yeah. That seems like the answer here. But it, it is interesting also that so much of the presidential race, I, I have been kind of surprised by how much of it seems 
talked about Buttigieg. We've talked a little bit about Sanders and obviously Biden. But it, it is interesting to me how much, you know, when the year began, I think a lot of people were like Kamala Harris, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who did kind of have a rise. It, it's interesting, though, because even the way we talk about this, mm-hmm. like there's the actual polling, which has been like Biden, Bernie, Warren for like six months or something. Well, Warren was in second place yes. for about five weeks. Right. That um, was her. her but then it just, it become, it. I think it, it's become very much apparent how much kind of like the, you know, I, I, I'm interested, part of me would love this experiment of like, what would happen if we did the presidential primary without any media coverage whatsoever? Like we did this, like they do elections. I think it would be hard for people to learn about the candidates. Yeah, I just if there right. was no coverage of them. No, I no, but I just mean how much kind of media intervention. How much better would things be if none of us had jobs? Asks Jane. You know what? <laughs> I could take care of your cat. Everything would be fine. Neither of us could afford to take care of my cat. It would be interesting. Okay, if all political journalism had to be just coverage of the government, right? And then you right. had to go into the voting booth. And you would be confronted by surprise with the names of a variety of politicians. And then just based on what you had heard about them yeah. in their capacity as senators or governors or whatever, you had to decide which one you liked. Right, Although think- in practice, that would just mean former vice presidents yep, like, right. always win because people don't remember their names. But I, I think that the degree to which the electability question, which I think is largely determined by kind of um, – there was a piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about kind of the – centrist bias where just kind of like where a lot of times journalists and I do this myself are just kind of like well that sounds crazy so that mm-hmm. won't work um and people you know, that that's why I think that certain candidates have been underestimated and certain candidates may have been overestimated but it is interesting to think how much of this race is dependent on like I like him but I don't think other people like him and I feel like that's something that surprised me all right all so right. now that we're in there let's do a predictions lightning round ooh, ooh okay Gene. Who's going to be the Democratic nominee? This is based lightning. This is based purely on like I think it would be interesting <laughs> to observe Bernie Sanders. Uh, God, Dara, I Dara. haven't been persuaded that it's not going to be Joe Biden. Yeah, it's going to be Joe Biden. He's ahead in the polls. <laughs> I don't know. I know, but <laughs> I, I just it, I think that the Sanders the the Sanders Trump debates would be both much better television and arguably like a better event for political education than right. the Trump-Biden debates, which I am already dreading. <laughs> right. Biden debates are going to be a, a master class in transcribing. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> no, but I think that the number, like, I, you know, when I talk to conservatives, they're like, well, the Democrats would never let Bernie be the nominee. But like, I'm like, but what if they did? They won't. But what if they did? And so now I've just become like, I'm just curious to see what would happen here, which I feel like is a very strange thing to think about, like, the politics of my own country that I'm just sort of like, let's put this new guy in at quarterback and just see what happens. But, you know. <laughs> but I was asking for a prediction, not advocacy. Right. No, that's not. But I think that is both. I, I am predict advocating. Okay. Predict advocating. All right. Lightning over. Um. <laughs> so, okay, this is kind of another way to look at, at things toward the end of the year. What are What is something that, like, you know, I think I, all of us kind of have our particular drums to beat, and this is the last chance right. to do that for 2019. What is the thing that people didn't pay attention to that they should have paid attention to? I think that something I did not pay attention to and want to pay more attention to is kind of the— 
what, a lot of times when I'm talking to about Republicans and conservatives, I admittedly am talking about Republicans and conservatives who are in like Republican conservative media. And I think that that really misses um, a lot of times like who, you know, one of the biggest lessons of 2016 is that a lot of kind of high level conservatives who get paid to be conservative were like, this is what conservatism is. And voters were like, actually, we don't care about any of that at all. And I think that what we're seeing now where, you know, with looking at how specific things pull in the communities that went from Obama to Trump or, you know, what we've seen in some, you know, down-ballot races is just how much, you know, kind of changes, like manufacturing changes and kind of just economic changes have impacted how people think about politics and kind of the rise of populism or the re-rise of populism, because I will not let people forget about William Jennings Bryan. Um, I think that that's something I missed a little bit where I was, you know, I'm interested in this. And I think Republicans are starting to pick up on this, which is why you're seeing a lot of messaging changes in terms of how people are talking about the use of the government. But I think that, you know, how people, how that started is something that I wish I had picked up on more. The U.S. has successfully extraterritorialized its its asylum policy, like, Basically, no one who comes to the U.S. without papers via or through the southern border is, you know, eligible for asylum. And many of them aren't necessarily are going to be either sent back to Mexico indefinitely or sent back or sent to increasingly other countries permanently. And no one really noticed because it wasn't happening on U.S. soil and in government custody. I would just say more broadly, like. I feel, and I I feel very frustrated by this, but that there is not nearly enough attention paid to the things that the Trump administration does. Right. Right. Which you've written eloquently on. Versus to the things that Donald Trump says. Right. Or to the things that Donald Trump is felt to signify. Right. Yes. And that what you're talking about there at the border, I mean, is a key example of it where, you know, the— the proverbial kids in cages was a thing that happened, at least, unlike right. unlike a lot of sort of Trump controversies that, that took up more ink. But it became very much a, you know, a, a symbol. And then when the symbol was kind of removed, there's very little attention to the policy and, and what it means. Then you have whole areas of, of policy that I occasionally cover, like bank regulation um, and, like, non-climate aspects of environmental protection where there's, like, nothing. You know, it's it's silence. Um, there was a great story in the New York Times uh, on Monday, and it was about, like, how they've written the international tax regulations to create, like, a much bigger tax windfall for, for big corporations than people had initially envisioned. And, I mean, good good on them for writing it. And, you know, unfortunate, I think, to have it come out in the, like, holiday dead week. But I feel like the, like, big picture editorial decision to drop a story like that in the intra-holiday dead week is, like, emblematic of sort of where we are as a, as a country, that, like, stories about, like, here are huge policy changes you haven't heard about are kind of like, eh, who cares, versus, like, you know, here's a wacky anecdote about Trump not knowing where light bulbs were. It's like, yeah, I know. I, I tend to, and this is actually something that I hope dies a terrible death in 2020. Like the I, the fact that a lot of really, really good 
slow-burning journalism gets published in December and specifically in the last two weeks of December is attributable to Pulitzer deadlines as much as anything else. And it really, it it's the time of year when people are literally least likely to read serious journalism and when the most of it gets published. And it, it's unacceptable and needs to change. Yes. Uh, but I mean, right, but just like as a, I don't know, like people who are resistance-minded, people who are in journalism, like everybody has to try to like, get their shit together, I think, and focus on on real things rather than on their kind of, like, gut-level cringe at, at Trump. Right, because right. I think that there's... I think that there's a criticism. Um, you see this kind of from the right that, like, oh, you know, you just, you just oppose, you know, or people who oppose Trump just oppose his style. Like, oh, I wish he didn't tweet as much. When I'm like, you know, I think that for many people... You know, and Matt, you've written on this, as I mentioned, the idea of, like, what this administration has actually done, specifically, um, you know, in the back and forth between um, a one evangelical publication and townhall.com, the conservative website, over, you know, Trump's impeachment, there was a lot of debate, like, okay, what has Trump done? And I think that there's kind of the, con- the pro-Trump interpretation of, like, he's nominated all these judges who will do things that we want them to do um, and won't do things we don't want them to do. But I do think that the idea, like, n- we are now far past the idea of Trump. Like, we have gotten way past the, like, do you remember, what, like, in 2017 when there were all those fake Twitter accounts that were, like, rogue White yeah. House staffer yep. person? Like, we're, we're past that. Like, we've gotten into, like, this is actual. this has already happened, this has actually happened, here's what is happening. I think that's really important to focus on. And, you know, I mean, and it's going to be a real question, I mean, back to, to Dara and, and the asylum, right? It's like... Is the new administration going to, like, invite people back in to apply for asylum? Right. Yeah, there's there's traditionally been the case. Or are they going to quietly kind of pocket the win that Trump did the dirty work on and now make sure they don't have an asylum problem on the southern border? Right. I mean, I think that there's definitely there are going to be conversations probably within the Democratic Party and progressives about how to rebuild what has been taken, what has been changed under Trump. But I think there's also going to be an underrated political fight over what should be changed, because the thing about making something the status quo is that it seems a lot less radical. Right. Right. I mean, once it's the status quo, you know, it's it's the status quo and it's it's kind of easy enough. Right. And I don't think any, you know, we've had several presidents now who came into office with, like, immigration reform goals. But it hasn't actually ever been anybody's goal to, like, have more asylum seekers come, right? Like, that's that's and not what And there's that... also this, you know, changing things in this particular way opens people up to an equivalent of the Willie Horton effect, which is if you can be pegged as the person who let someone in or let someone free and then a terrible thing happens, like, the the— Fear of that among office holders is so strong still on criminal justice stuff, even after a decade plus of bipartisan momentum on on criminal justice reform at the, like, abstract policy level. Um, And it really has impeded the passage of, you know, turning that into actual policy. And I think, you know, what— Something similar happens if you're looking at changing a more restrictive to a less restrictive immigration policy. Right. I mean, if a thousand people come— Right. And 0.1% of them do something horrible. Like that's, that's a person. 
that's that's a person indeed. That's, that's going to yeah. be a bad news cycle for you, right? Mm-hmm. If there's been a big controversy about it, right? Although I guess one of the other things that like it's not like we just learned this in 2019, but the extent to which the year doesn't go to the per- or the cycle doesn't go to the person who wins or loses the most news cycles, like. This year started with a partial government shutdown that lasted, you know, several weeks. Yep. And no one is talking about that as a big factor going into 2020, right? Like the some there are definitely some things that you can make salient to your base mm-hmm. or that, you know, are going to resonate particularly strongly with your base. I think the Kavanaugh confirmation fight was a really underrated watershed moment for bringing a lot of conservatives home to Trump. But you can't actually make everything salient. And right. as a result, some things that seem at the time like they arguably should be a major factor in determining who gets to control the levers of government end up just because of timing falling by the wayside. Exactly. Like, I think that there's an idea that you can make something, you can make voters be as mad about something as you purport to be. And it turns out largely you cannot. Well, I mean— And you, it, don't know what, you don't know whether or not them being mad will then push their opponents to be— extra mad. Like with Kavanaugh, there's an argument to be made that Kavanaugh, you know, activated conservative voters, but also activated people who didn't like Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. And then they all wound up at the ballot box. But I, but I also do think, right, I mean, timing is so important in politics. And I guess on some level, we probably always knew that. But like, it's really been striking to me over the past several years, like how clearly that comes through. That Like government shutdowns, both the one that happened at the beginning of this year, but also the one that happened at the beginning of 2014, were like catastrophic for the approval ratings of Republicans in both cases uh, who were seen as initiating it. But also they bounced back super quickly, and they become total non-factors in the elections that, that happen after there. This Kavanaugh thing, you know, it was a, it was a big deal uh, while the fight was ongoing. Um, but right now, we have kind of looming out there, right, that there is probably no longer a pro-choice majority on the Supreme Court. And clearly, if a 5-4 ruling came down, like, two weeks before the election to the effect of abortion is now illegal in the United States. That would be a huge deal in politics. But even though everyone knows that, like, the odds of of ruling along those lines are not trivial at this point, it's, it's a total nothing in politics, right? But if it happens, it'll be a huge deal. But then it might be nothing two months afterwards, right? Like, it's, it's weird. It's like people don't, I don't know. I think that— It's it's not a rational way to assess political actors, right? To be like, this political party keeps doing irresponsible government shutdowns, but they tend to do it in Januaries, so I don't care. (laughs) Like, that's that's not great. Well, and it means that if you are going to activate people against a hypothetical, you have to keep them at such a high level of anxiety that they're not necessarily sensitive to news events anyway, right? Like, people who—it's not like there aren't a coterie of people who really are, by default, single-issue abortion voters insofar as they really, really care about the Supreme Court and they care about the Supreme Court because of abortion. It's that those people have—like, that is a single issue for them. They have, you know, 
that is a large part of their political of their kind of agenda and identity is getting this thing changed and not necessarily in a way that seems closer or further away when when various news events happen like i don't think that there's you know i don't think there are a whole lot of people who are going to not vote for trump in 2020 after voting for him in 2016 if roe v wade is still standing the kind of the the push is the point something right. similar is true on people who are you know very strongly in favor of gun rights. Right. The kind of the fact that Donald Trump, you know, has done, has, you know, has done more on federal gun control, arguably, than his predecessor did is not super, you know, that's not necessarily affecting their views of things. They are eas- they are activated by the fear of someone grabbing their guns in the future. Right. And that is fear allows them to kind of look past a whole lot of other political behavior that comes short of that. But then there are other things, you know, like I, you know, will still hear from people who say that they had initially been optimistic about Barack Obama as a uh, figure who would somehow like abandon racial grievance politics. But then he said, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm still mad about that. Oh, yeah. You know, like X years later. At this point, I'm like. Not, if- not to endorse that, word, but just to say, right, like there, there. And I do think that like there is a segment of the electorate who, however you want to characterize them on the spectrum of racist to not racist, they were not racist enough to vote for Barack Obama at one point, but also racist enough yeah. to have like a strong racially motivated tilt against Democrats after Obama's election. And it really is true that that's based on a small number, like things that happened, but like a small number of them, right, that like permanently shifted perceptions of like who Barack Obama was or even like what politics is about. Right. Like, yes, you know, like 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 what 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 the purpose of voting is that like, you know, attitudes like there's national news stories about this now apparently fraudulent incident in which somebody at a McDonald's right. uh, maybe wrote a mean note to a police officer. Right. So like this has become a huge political topic. Yes. Right. Like both. First, for activists, Black Lives Matter activists looking for police reform. But now there's like a huge amount of like pro-cop identity politics. Right. As like a big force in America when like that – like law and order politics had long existed. But like this particular thing with thin blue line flags and like that's all quite new. It's – I mean thin blue line – it's a way that law enforcement has always viewed itself that is now becoming a – you know, something that people feel the who consider themselves sympathetic to law enforcement feel the need to express as an explicit part of their politics more. I think part of this is that, like, police officers and firemen were, you know, have always been among the most broadly approved of professions in p- public opinion polls. And so to a certain extent, the, you know, focus on policing and police reform that the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, crystallized was taking something that was a consensus and making it not a consensus anymore. And so there's backlash to that. And I think the other thing is that you know, there's often been the perception within rank and file law enforcement that they are underappreciated and necessary. And that is that marries well with a certain uh, with the grievance mode of culture war right. politics. Exactly. And so as conservatives have instead of hating the culture, you know, instead of kind of hating on grievance politics, learn to find ways in which they can they themselves can express yeah, they it. Can this be is an easy thing. They're aggrieved. Correct. There you go. Indeed. I like it. 
Okay. <laughs> Cannibalizing myself from a 2017 end of year. <laughs> okay. So this is not just the end of 2019, but is the end of a decade. Right. Yes. And so, Jerry, you, you you sort of mentioned this before the show, but it's like looking back, like out of, out of these 10 years, right? If you're assuming, you know, historians, they got to edit a lot of stuff out. Like what? What what from this time period like actually counted for something? Like what what will be remembered or what deserves to be remembered? I think that you have to say looking back on the decade as a whole like and this is, you know, in the first part of the decade, a lot of people had normalized the idea that that fights that national political battles were going to be about the size of government forever and ever amen, right? right? Like this comes back to something that Jane was saying earlier in the episode, but it really was it was a bipartisan assumption that like the question is, is the era of big, big government over? And we've now moved to a more complicated political landscape that arguably maps better onto what voters actually cared about all along, which is who is government helping and who is government hurting? And are they the people that I deem to be on my side right. or not? Right. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, like, the people who looked at the Tea Party movement in 2010 and said, this is not really about, you know, believing in small government, or this is not what primarily is motivating people, were 100% correct. While at the same time, the people who who extended that critique to really the point of the pro-business community is white white supremacy and racism have seen that the pro-business community has like lost, has has lost a certain amount of kind of truck with populist politics, right. if not necessarily with policymaking. So, you know, I think people, a lot of critics of the Republican Party and the conservative movement turned out to be right, but for unexpected reasons, with the result that the, at the national level, politics had to transform to better map onto what people actually cared about on the ground in a way that makes it seem, that is much less amenable to compromise than just kind of moving the, the slider on big government, small government. Right. I would say it's funny thinking about, you know, this time in, 10 years ago. We were about five years removed from a big fight about whether to add a constitutional amendment uh, that would ban same-sex marriage. And we were Gosh, two yeah. years away from Barack Obama saying that, like, he'd changed his mind on marriage oh equality. Oh, my gosh, yeah. We ha- and we it is, I know, like, it is amazing to me, and I've brought this up a couple of times this week, I know, and I'm so grateful that the least important thing about Pete Buttigieg is that he's gay and married to a man. But the fact that, one, he is gay and married to a man, he is married to a man in a marriage that is recognized by the federal government, and I am also married, and that mar- like that that's not even—I I don't think I have—I think that is probably the biggest sea change in my lifetime to have taken place— and the fact that it's one that, like, we don't really think about or talk about that much and that, like, people, you know, it's weird when people are, like, you know, when you occasionally see, like, religious groups yelling about gay marriage, you're like, that's an odd thing to be mad about when it was, like, the you know, Maggie Gallagher's entire job to yell about gay marriage, like, this time 10 years ago. And it is wild to me that that has taken place. It is absolutely wild to me. More so than I think movement on marijuana legalization, more more so than I think the the sea change on marriage equality, a concept that when I was a like junior senior in high school was like unimaginable 
And already, you know, I think Ohio had passed laws against Like, there had mm-hmm. been numerous laws passed against it. And then it's just sort of like, yeah, like, you know, oh, the, my, these friends are getting married, like, today or something. Like, these well-known women soccer players got married this week. And people are like, wow, what a beautiful wedding. And it was highlighted in People magazine. And it just is like, oh, like, the normalization and I, I feel like whenever people say normalization, it means it's a bad thing, but I actually think it's a fucking awesome thing. But it is wild to me that that has taken place. Wild. So I synthesize these points. Oh. Abu- abusing the decade time frame. We go back 15 years to the winter of 2004, 2005, right? The conversation in Washington that winter was dominated by two questions. One was, per Jane, had Karl Rove's idea of doing ballot initiatives around constitutional amendments to ban gay marriage, was that like a political, like, like death blow to Democrats that they had to, like, somehow, like, sell out more, right? That right. Democrats were not advocating for marriage equality, but they were they were playing a cutesy game with it. And, like, did they, did they need to ditch that? Then the other was Bush's Social Security privatization plan. And didn't Democrats maybe need to, you know, uh, come to the table with something, acknowledge the significance of addressing the crisis, right? Then you flash forward five years from that, right, to to 10 years ago. By that time, I think it was clear that, like, Democrats were not going to be permanently locked out of office by the marriage equality issue. But as Jane was saying, I mean, that remained, like, a cutting-edge progressive thing. And as Dara was saying, like, the the political stakes, right, whether or not that's what was really motivating Tea Partiers Mm -hmm. was all about, okay, now that Obama got his little health care bill, Like, how are we going to reduce the deficit through big cuts to long-term entitlement programs, right? And if you establish that context, I mean, we're talking about historians, right? So it really is. Like, if you need to incorporate Trump into a a narrative arc, you see that, like, behind this, like, surge of right-wing populism or, or whatever, it's like an incredible diminution of the conservative movement's, like, substantive ambitions down to, like, being mean to asylum seekers um, and some other things, right? And it's not that nothing is happening on on the ground on these other policy areas, but, like, they are really shrinking, like, like what they are about, you know, uh, to just something smaller. And, like, I think, you know, in some ways, like, more small-minded, but, like, in reality, like, they're given ground on, like, really important issues. I mean, I think that one of the things to look out for in, you know, the next, like, the next decade is who feels the need to kind of buttress that. You know, it if we take for granted that the, that this is, that that kind of tribalist, quote unquote, politics is what a certain number of voters actually want. You still one of the perp- one of the things that a movement does is take people's often underinformed and sometimes like actually bigoted views and create an ideological superstructure that is more, you know, that that can be something that can be discussed in more neutral terms that you can create compromises right. on. And so a whether whether and who steps into whether anyone and if so who steps in to fill that role and like build up what a government that helps us and doesn't help them looks like or whether the 
kind of conservatism is for owning the libs idea takes hold among the very elites who would generally be in the position of saying, well, here's what these people really want. Right. And, you know, building a policy agenda. Well, so should we, should, we, should we turn from that to some more expansive predictions? All right, yeah. Okay. Beyond just, just Democratic nomination? Okay. What, uh, what, what, does the year, what does the year hold, Jane? Are the libs going to be owned? I mean, probably a few times. And then... <laughs> conservatives will also be owned and we'll all be owned. Perhaps that's it. Like, we're all just going to get owned. That'll be it. That's 2020. But what does that mean? No, this, this is the weeds. You gotta, gotta explain yourself. I, I think that 2020, it's interesting because I think that, you know, I think that there are going to be many moments this year in which people are extraordinarily upset and then in about a month they kind of forget why they were upset and then when you look back to the month before it'll feel as if it happened in the Mesozoic I think that's that's going to be a lot of 2020 just ownership but then kind of forgetting about it um I am I also think that 2020 I hope will feature um some efforts by people who are smart to recognize that Politics and the people who are within politics is super complicated. Um, and to take advantage, like, and to stop saying, you know, I hope that 2020 is the year where we start, stop saying things like leader in the black community as if we all have meetings. Or maybe 2020 is the year in which we finally start having those meetings because I would go. <laughs> um, but I think also, you know, I, I think 2020 will see the end of WeWork based on, um, <laughs> you know, the 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 bad things that they have had happen, and also the end to the uh, CEO of WeWork advising Jared Kushner about the Middle East, which is a real weird thing that actually happened. Um, and I think 2020 will also see a lot of weird takes about the 1920s that will annoy me. I think that that's another thing that will happen. Takes about the 1920s that will annoy you. We're going to, people are going to talk about the 1924 Democratic National Convention, and they're going to be wrong about it on the internet, and I'm going to be upset. That's what I predict. Uh, I actually do have one more Democratic nomination uh, prediction, which is that in accordance with the Matt Iglesias mantra that personnel is policy, uh, Democratic candidates are going to start shoring up their coalitional support by naming particular potential cabinet members and potential vice presidents. Uh, a phenomenon that will include at least one news cycle of a candidate getting owned because someone they mentioned as a potential cabinet member was not contacted and did not and does not in fact support them for president. Uh, I think that we're going to have a few more, not quite Ukraine style, but a few more incidents in which the in, in which U.S. policy toward a country that not a lot of pe- not a ton of people on the domestic side were paying attention to suddenly becomes super duper important for the cons- for the purposes of the Trump administration. I would nominate Venezuela, which has been kind of the dog that didn't bite, as a potential thing to look at for you know what that's going to be. I also think we're going to hear some. I I think we're going to hear some more about Eric Prince, who's been one of the figures who's shown up in a lot of ways, but hasn't yet had a coherent role in this administration. And I think one of those ball, one of those shoes will finally drop in 2020. William McAdoo would have won. That's a, that's a 1924 Democratic primary joke uh, for, for those in the know. Um, so I think that this year coming forward, you know, we're going to start to see, I don't know how much this will impact 
politics overtly, but I think we're going to really start to see the impact of low unemployment uh, changing how the world works in ways that people who don't remember uh, the the 1990s um, are going to find surprising. That, you know, it's going to become a world in which the ability to attract and retain personnel is like a key differentiator for businesses and like a real skill that effective managers need to have in a way that hasn't been the case for a, a long time. And there's going to be, I, I mean, it, like any change, like it's going to wind up creating problems for some people, but I think it's going to be a really, like a really good thing uh, for a lot of people's lives. And a question for politics, I, I mean, I think a tough one for Democrats is going to be like, how do they um, acknowledge the benefits of progress on the labor market without, you know, just like giving Trump his his win. Right. Uh, I, I think there are ways to do that. But I think that where Democrats are at right now is to just kind of like say that nothing good is really changing. And I, I think that's going to be increasingly untenable. Um, you see people's subjective assessments of the economy have gotten really quite good. Uh, so it's not just a question of like, you know, I'm – throwing some charts at you and telling you things are better than you think. Like, people think things are better than Democrats are saying, and they're going to have to come up with a, a way to deal with that. Right. And while we certainly know that people's subjective assessments of how good the economy is also have something to do with how they feel about who's running the government, right. Right. once you've gotten behind that, it's going to—it's a lot harder to tell people the economy is worse than you think it is once they've kind of developed an opinion on the matter. Yeah. And there are clearly, like, people who say the economy is doing well is a l much larger share of the population than people who say Donald Trump is a good president. Mm. So, like, yes, like, you're there's always going to be a thing where, like, the incumbent president's fans, you know, like it. But we're clearly in a thing where, you know, like, whatever, the, not like the middle in a centrist sense, right. but like the the contested portion of the electorate yeah. has like relatively upbeat assessment of how things are going. Indeed. And with that, All right. lovely 2019. Uh, have a happy new year, uh, everybody out in the audience. Uh, always enjoy uh, the Weeds Facebook group. Make your New Year's resolution to spend more time recommending the Weeds to your friends and buying products from all of our sponsors. Uh, it's really important for everyone to do. Uh, thanks to Jeff Geld for coming in uh, straight from, from the airport uh, on an off day to uh, help record us here. And uh, <laughs> so we'll be back on Friday.